This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenal, and today is a very special episode of ContraZoom. I'm very excited because this is actually episode number 50. That means I have done 49 previous episodes of ContraZoom talking about movies and getting to share my love and passion with all of you. I started this way back with the very first episode, April 21st, back in 2015. So it's been a little over two years now that I've been doing this. There's been times where I've been regular with posting, having an episode come out every three to four weeks. I've been sometimes where I've been great at doing them every two weeks. And then unfortunately, there's been times where life kind of gets in the way where they come every month and a half. Um, I made it my goal this year to get to 24 episodes, and it looks like I'm probably going to get to 22, which is still the most I've ever done in a single year, uh, which would constitute almost 50% of my entire episode in a single year, uh, which is very exciting. I originally started this uh, when I had a co-host Andreas Babiolakis and we kind of started because we both love talking about movies and while we really enjoy being on the Capsule podcast the one that Sean Chin hosts uh, and we sometimes talk about movies there it was not a frequent thing and we wanted it to be more in depth and, and kind of really go back and forth about these movies that's where our tagline came from Originally, the idea was to name the show The Third Man because it would be about myself, Andreas, and the podcast being The Third Man, named after the very famous Orson Welles movie, The Third Man. Uh, unfortunately, I think Jack White already has that name. Uh, you know, it just might have been a minor confusion, although I would have loved to be mistaken for Jack White or, you know, vice versa. Jack White confused for me. But. We settled on ContraZoom. I know I've told this story a few different times of how it got the name. Um, I think one of the biggest things is, uh, myself especially, I'm a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock invented what is called the Dolly Zoom. That means when you're filming, uh, you have a shot that's on a dolly, which is tracks, and if the dolly is being pulled backwards, the camera lens is zooming inward. So that way, the focal point remains the same, but the background looks like it's going through a time warp. You can also reverse it. So that way, the dolly is going inwards and the zoom is going outwards. So it still kind of maintains the exact same focal point. Uh, it first was invented in Vertigo in the famous bell tower scenes when Jimmy Stewart's character is looking up and down these staircases and that's where his um, fear of heights kind of kicks in and it kind of gives this weird trippy sensation. It also was repeated by Spielberg's Jaws. Uh, there's a famous scene where um, oh, I'm blanking on what his name when when Captain Brody is sitting on the beach uh, and uh, he thinks he sees a shark out in the water and there's this great dolly zoom contra zoom shot uh, where he freaks out thinking that everyone is in danger at this beach 
So it's kind of like th- those two movies are very influential, more so Hitchcock, but what this kind of Hitchcock's legacy moves on and you see it all the time now and every once in a while I'll see it in a movie or TV show and I just have to point it out to anyone that's in the same room to be like, that's a contra zoom shot. And of course, by then everyone kind of knows it by now is, is sick of me telling it. But, uh, I just thought that's kind of a fun story to, to repeat. But yeah, it's been 50 episodes. I, I'm still in love with this. In fact, I, the more I do it, the more passion I'm getting. And I've, I've got tons of great plans of what I want to do with the next whole bunch. I'm already, you know, calculating everything that's going on and how to make this bigger and better and push it further and get a bigger audience. Um, but I, I really couldn't be doing any of this without Sean Chin, who is the uh, editor-in-chief of Live in Limbo, the creator and host of Capsule Podcast, and I'm absolutely honored that he sent me a congratulations message that I'm going to play here for you, uh, and he has a few words to talk about my sort of involvement and, and his perspective on all that. Hey, ContraZoom and all of your fine listeners, this is Sean Chin the chief editor and founder of Live in Limbo and host of Capsule Podcast, I wanted to give you and your amazing host, Dakota Arsenault, a mega congrats on making it to your 50th episode. This is a real accomplishment. Dakota has taken Live in Limbo's film podcast to a whole new level and one that was even beyond what I had hoped. I am so thrilled that we've been able to expand what was once just a singular website podcast into a mini podcast network. We have Capsule, which is music and pop culture related, Neo Human with Aga Bahari, which is more philosophical and political, and then of course we have this ContraZoom podcast, which is film-based, and this is absolutely awesome and everything that I've wanted. And just seeing Dakota being able to take this project by himself and uh, learn all the t- skills and tools from it, like uh, GarageBand and the whole audio recording process from microphones and all of that is just phenomenal. He learned really well, and I could not have asked for more in a host. And so congrats to Dakota and all of you again, and keep up the good work and get to episode 100. I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Foul. I want to give my sincere thanks and gratitude to Sean for uh, sending that message and giving me this platform to uh, to express my my thoughts and feelings and love of, of film with everyone. So uh, thank you, and I hope you keep listening. Now uh, on to the show. Um, this 
Today I am I'm joined once again by Stephanie Pryor, who has been on the show twice before for the Make Remake series that I have going on here, um, where we kind of compare an original movie and a remake. And while this isn't quite a Make Remake, it's it sort of is, is similar in an interesting way. Um, we're going to be talking about the character Dracula for our special Halloween episode. Last year, I had Rachel Gordon on, uh, and we talked about our favorite Halloween movie recommendations, but based on different um, genres and styles, so that way it isn't just, you know, very traditional. Uh, this one, we're just going to focus right on Dracula and his sort of evolution on screen. So thank you very much for joining me today, Stephanie. Yeah, no problem. Very excited. So in preparation for this, we watched uh, three Dracula movies or movies with Dracula in it. We watched uh, the 1931 Dracula film that was directed by Todd Browning. We watched Horror of Dracula, which is a uh, British Hammer film from 1938 directed by Terrence Fisher. 1958, sorry, yes, thank you. Uh, and then lastly, Bram Stoker's Dracula, the 1993 movie directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, these three movies we felt were a good representation of the character. One, because the 1931 version was the first real Dracula film. There's one more Nosferatu that came before it that is called Nosferatu because they could not call it Dracula because they did not have the legal rights to call it that, but it essentially is the exact same story. And we'll talk about that a bit later. But the 1931 version is technically the original Dracula film. Then you've got uh, the 1948 Horror of Dracula, which is sort of seen uh, as one of the other pivotal ones because Christopher Lee played Dracula, and that was one of the most famous interpretations of the character. Uh, and then lastly, we've got Bram Stoker's Dracula, which is the for- Francis Ford Coppola movie, which sort of modernized the character quite a bit because, you know, there's been close to 100 years now of monster movies, and it really kind of updated the story while giving it a big budget treatment as opposed to it being a B-movie that a lot of it is. Um, a lot of these like monster genre movies are. So I think those three were really good ones to kind of pinpoint on, especially since they really have set the trope of what Dracula is. Each one sort of have laid the template for future incarnations of the, the Dracula character, the Van Helsing character, uh, and everything else that kind of goes along because both of those are kind of, uh, sort of seen as the mainstream horror uh, characters in this sort of lore. Um, so while it's not a traditional make remake, did you kind of watch these movies with a bit of a similar eye of how to compare and contrast them and, and the way these characters played out? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's hard not to when it's, you know, the same character, essentially three different ways. Um, so yeah, you you definitely watch them. With uh, a similar eye, trying to see the similarities and the differences between each three. Obviously, the first one you don't have as much of a reference to base off of because it's your your first um, look into the character. But going further on, you you pick up different uh, different similarities and, and different differences between each three. 
Now, like, I know last year, I think it was last year, we had watched Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a time to watch it this year. Um, and that movie kind of really is its own beast, no pun intended, <laughs> as far as the way the Dracula character is sort of portrayed. He's much right. more monstrous, mm-hmm. uh, not as much human. But the very first Dracula, the 1931 version starring Bela Lugosi, did you watch it and sort of almost feel like you've already seen this movie before? Because the way anytime you see Dracula or any vampires in popular culture, it really seems like that's the template that they are directly copying, parodying, spoofing, things like that. So did you feel sort of a bit of a deja vu when you were watching it at times? Yeah, I think with Lugosi's Dracula, he, you know, is the originator of the Playboy Dracula where he's this suave, kind of sexy character, where obviously Nosferatu couldn't quite pull that off with his face and ears going on. But, um, you know, every Dracula you've seen since then has, has basically been this calm, cool, collected guy that everyone seems to be uh, drawn to his charisma and personality. It's almost like you either have to pay direct homage to the Lugosi Dracula, or you need to go out of your way to be completely different than him while sort of, you know, making sure that the audience knows that you're being different than Lugosi's Dracula. There, there, there's no sort of in between where you're, you're, you're doing a, a recreation of it or trying to completely avoid Lugosi. Those are the two sort of standards that seem to have been set. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of an interesting way of seeing it. Um, we also picked these three movies because we hadn't seen any of them. Uh, general thoughts. Did you like them? Did you find them scary? Were, are they good Halloween movies? Would you recommend them to people? Um, I think they are good Halloween movies. Just based alone on their content. Um, would I call them scary? Mm, not necessarily. I actually thought that the first one was probably the most uh scary it had this ominous dark feeling towards it whereas um bram stoker's dracula almost seemed to be too over the top where it was just kind of silly at times and uh horror of dracula almost played out more of a drama than it was a horror for me so i wouldn't necessarily call any of them uh scary movies but i would recommend them depending on who i'm talking to if they're more into the gore and you know sexy films then that's probably bram stoker's dracula if they're looking for a an interesting you know watch for halloween that isn't scary then you go for horror dracula and if you're a 20s 30s geek like me who just loves black and white films and anything that has to do with any part of that era then i would go for dracula I think I think the original Dracula kind of really hits a high point as far as even though it was a B-movie genre film, it sort of has outgrown its stature of what it was supposed to be and sort of transcended into what great movies of that era mm really were great at you know it's got some great cinematography it's got great lighting the the character the actors are all very committed to their roles and are are pretty well formed even even if for the most part they're pretty one-dimensional characters you know they have 
they have their goal and motivation. There is no changing. They're, that's just who they are, which a lot of movies from that era are, usually because of the shorter mm-hmm. running time yeah. and for fear that audiences wouldn't understand these sort of changes. They're sort of approached very fully formed for what they're presenting. And then you also, well, the set is kind of cheesy at times where you're like, this is a painted wall. (laughs) This is a matte painting. This is, you know, just cobwebs thrown up. There is a bit of a charm to the sets. I didn't mind that at all. No, and there there are a few moments where there's, you know, a real lived-in quality to it when when Dracula first brings up Jonathan Harker to his room and there's this roaring fire going on and there's a nice veranda balcony behind them. There's a real quality that someone lives here. It's dusty and dingy, but there's the effort to make it look nice. Mm -hmm. And I think that really shines through on what makes the movie good because it's not a scary movie. You know, you can, you can show this to any age person. You can show this probably maybe four years old, too young. They'd probably be freaked out a bit by it, but you know, age seven and up, no one's going to be scared of this movie. Because something else that I found with, with this one with Dracula is that they actually don't really show anything. No. If they show anything, it's either a shadow or. It's leading up to. It's implied. An Everything point, is implied. It's implied. Mm-hmm. Implied. The camera will either pan away or you know it zooms in on something while you know something else is going on. So you don't see anything. There's nothing for you to really be scared of. And another thing to consider is 1931 is very early in in cinema's history. Yeah, it's been going on for almost 20 years at this point, but sound was still a very recent uh, invention to be combining the two with both sight and sound. And, and so this is, I won't, I'm not going to say it's one of the first talkies because it's not, but it's definitely within the first few years of it. And at this point, not all studios were doing sound films. Studios that were doing sound films were still doing silent films at the same time. Um, and because of it, they weren't really able to capture, which is probably the most, the, the, the component that, mo- that most makes horror movies, which is the music. Uh, music makes things scary more often than just the visual. You know, a screeching violin, a delicate piano sound, a l- burst of a drum beat, something like that is what kind of really sets your heart going, uh, whether to, as a fake out, or because a genuine scare is happening. Both are used interchangeably. This, there is only non-diegetic music, which means that there is only music that appears on screen. There's one scene where there's an orchestra scene, uh, a symphony scene, and as soon as we see the outside of this concert hall, the music starts, which is the clever way of introducing the music without actually being able to see where it's coming from. And then the next shot is it shows you that a band is playing, a full symphony orchestra is playing, and the music is louder, of course, at this point, but there is that there's that clever editing where they, they insert it about 10 seconds before you actually see it. So viewers today will be able to understand why they do this but back then it was because oh my god where's this music coming from oh okay ooh, there's a band on stage apparently because apparently i guess everyone was ridiculously scared of non-diegetic music uh before understanding what was going on so that's kind of an interesting way to do it 
So there, it doesn't have that same feel of most horror movies. When you realize, you know, you're basically watching a silent film with the odd bit of dialogue because Dracula is not a very loquacious character. Mm-hmm. He doesn't speak a lot. Um, you're kind of dealing with uh, basically a silent film. Almost. I mean, there obviously is dialogue. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there's no, you know rising of music there's nothing pulling you in making you feel uh tense or scared so it is it's almost it does kind of feel like that actually yeah and like the the two ways that they use the camera one for establishing shots they really make you understand where you are what the setting is so there is no confusion that you don't need someone to explain it just like a silent film that within a second you need to know exactly what's going on where is this taking place things like that they almost use those establishing shots as the uh the title cards exactly yeah that's that's what they're using that as and then the other side of it is for the most emotive moments the camera is very key so that way you don't need the sound or the dialogue to do it. So the looks that Dracula gives, the the look of fear in his victim's eyes, things like that are purposely used so that way you don't need sound or dialogue to really experience. And they kind of work hand in hand together to really piece together the movie where if you wanted to take out the dialogue, you'd be able to follow, follow along exactly with what's going on. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it... That's something actually that I really liked about this one is because a lot of movies today will will kind of use music as a crutch where they lean on it to kind of uh, guide the viewer into how they should be feeling at that moment. So without the use of music in this film, it's all up to you to either feel the way Dracula wants you to feel or the victim feels or you just kind of miss it. Mm-hmm. So I actually really like that. Okay. Uh, I guess we talked a lot about the first one. Let's, uh, let's mm-hmm. maybe go into the second one a little bit. Horror of Dracula, which was the first appearance of Christopher Lee as Dracula, who, you know, most audiences probably know him as Sauron from the Lord of the Rings movies. But this is, this is a legend. Uh, in every aspect of the word, uh, he's a horror legend. He's appeared in, in tons of horror movies, mostly as Dracula. Uh, he's been in a bunch of Sherlock Holmes movies as well, not as Sherlock. Um, he actually was in a Sherlock Holmes movie with uh, Peter Cushing, who is also in this. This was their first pair up, I believe, where Cushing plays Sherlock in, in later movies. So it's kind of interesting to see them together. Um and it kind of set the template for how Dracula would be perceived afterwards. While there's a bit of suave sex appeal to Lugosi's Dracula, there is more of a raw sex appeal to Christopher Lee's performance. You know, he's got this brooding, intimidating nature where you you feel guilty that you find his power attractive where you're like i shouldn't be attracted to this but it's he's so intimidating with his presence and his look and his deep voice and his british accent and and all this sort of stuff um and that's really kind of played up and, and kind of set the template as far as what sexy draculas will be later on including 
the women of Dracula too. Right. Um, so this is one that kind of, I feel falls a bit in the middle as far as it's not really scary. It's not as moody, but there's still some interesting things going on. What, what were your sort of thoughts about this? Yeah, I kind of have to agree there, you know, it just kind of fell in, in the middle with me as well. Well, I think it was still an enjoyable film to watch. It was, you know, there wasn't those extreme moments of, I don't know, I guess brilliance, you could say, that make it really rememberable. Uh, rememberable? Memorable, <laughs> I mean. Um, so it was just, it just fell so-so for me. Yeah. What uh, What about Lee's performance? How does that sort of stack up compare to Lugosi's? Um, it was definitely different. Like you, all the things you said, I agree with. Um, but it's kind of hard to say. I mean, he his Dracula, Christopher Lee's, was barely in the film. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting how the lead or the main, the title character, isn't even really in the film for more than... I think he's got eight minutes yeah. or so of screen time. So he really makes them count, though. Whenever he is on on screen, he has that presence. He has he brings that level of intimidation and fear with him. So he definitely pulls his weight as Dracula. Um, but I find them both be kind of similar, Lugosi's and Lee's Draculas, in the sense where, like I said, they have a presence. They have this. Uh, this mysterious charm to them that kind of draws you in and makes you want to like them. They sort of embody the count part of the Count Dracula exactly, character. Exactly, exactly. They're not just this scary monster. They're this this big shot somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and there is a bit of wealth and mystery behind them that they really carry themselves with a, a sense of properness. Yeah. You know, the Lee being uh, British himself, while he doesn't, he's no aristocrat, he sort of holds himself in that sort of mm-hmm. British aristocrat mm-hmm. manner. Uh, and Lugosi, uh, who is Eastern European himself, I'm, I'm blanking on on what his, his background is, but he sort of also sort of carries that eastern european nobility to him that's that's really interesting and unique um but yeah i would i would say that christopher lee's dracula is probably emulating lugosi's while doing his own thing with it but clearly borrowing elements like i said uh originally that that's sort of one of the templates is you take what lugosi did and build on it while making it your own character Mm -hmm. um it also kind of was because it was like a, a B movie British movie. It doesn't really follow the same Hollywood standards as far as what was going on at the time. And there is some, you know, sexiness in this with his wife. She's wearing this low cut toga dress with her chest yeah. propped up and like she's really there to be a, sed- a seductress. And, uh, it's funny. She, she first plays this character who makes you think that she's this prisoner uh, and held against her will, which is a common thread through the Dracula movies is that the people, despite being under his spell, simultaneously want to serve him, but also understand that they're under the spell and want to be free of it. So she kind of embodies that playing up the seduction angle with, uh, with 
both Peter with not Peter Cushing, uh, with uh, with Mike. No, not even Michael Ghost's character. What's what's his name? The um, uh, the the Jonathan Harker character played by John Van Essen. Um, she s- tries to seduce him and kiss him, and then suddenly turns and goes to bite him. Yeah. Uh, and realize, and then you kind of have to make the distinction: was this all sort of an act by her? Was this perhaps um, her genuinely wanting an escape, but then the the urge of human blood too much for her to resist that it just kind of fell into her arms that she was able to use her femininity to seduce him? It kind of has a bit of an interesting angle where you can kind of approach it from a few different ways. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I liked it. I thought... It left a lot to be desired, but I think it was still kind of an enjoyable movie and one that I would I would recommend if you're willing to kind of put in a, a bit of an effort to watch. It's not going to be your favorite movie. It's not going to be the greatest interpretation of it. It's not going to be scary. But if you're sort of into the history of horror movies and, you know, sort of like that style, it's definitely easy to recommend to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last one is uh, is Bram Stoker's Dracula, which kind of <sighs> Francis for Coppola. I love him, but he kind of is the director that embodies the highest of highs you can get in your profession with some pretty crappy movies as well. Like this is the the man who directed Jack, uh, which you know Robin Williams. May he rest in peace. That movie is no masterpiece of uh, Robin Williams trying to play a child. Uh, have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, I remember that movie. Yeah, yeah, like it's enjoyable enough as a kid, but when you think back to it, it's a really stupid <laughs> movie. <laughs> yeah, I remember enjoying it as a kid, although I can't really tell you what really happens in it now. But I just remember hairy ass Robin Williams trying to be a child which obviously is the point of the movie that like it's this kid that grows up too fast biologically and looks like robin williams but like the the absurdity of this when you have the man that could probably be playing the werewolf character without any additional hair on him uh playing this child just it would not work uh, if it wasn't for robin williams charm it would not have worked so like coppola has this huge disparate between his career levels of being really high and really really low and while i don't think this is a really high movie i also don't think this is a really low point of his movie i think interestingly enough he decided to make this movie to see what he could do with a camera. What mm. what are the camera's limitations at this point where he uses almost every single shot has some sort of special effect that was all done in camera, like the way that they had done for the previous 60, 70 years of filmmaking. I didn't know that. Yeah, other other than the blue fire that was sort of added Mm -hmm. post-production, all of it was done in camera Mm -hmm. were practical effects. Mm -hmm. So there's some really interesting stuff going on. And when you know that, it kind of makes it seem a lot more interesting. It does. <laughs> it, yeah, it really does. And so you understand what he's trying to do. But at the end of the day, it seems like he was given a really big budget to make a college film where you want to test the boundaries of what you can do with your camera. Mm-hmm. Because while the plot's coherent and everything like that, it just kind of flies off the rails at certain points and it just like gets literally laughable at certain points that are clearly meant to be scary moments. Yeah. Not 
not parody, not satire, although some some of it kind of is. There's a moment where it basically is a recreation of The Exorcist, where I think that clearly was done tongue-in-cheek when <laughs> the character is vomiting blood everywhere. That had to be a done tongue-in-cheek. There's no right, way that yeah. he did that with a serious face of what was going on. Yeah. But for the most part, this was a serious movie, <laughs> and I was laughing in it. Yeah, I found it pretty laughable, too. Although... The, I'll say right now, this is my least favorite of the three. It was just too over the top and too crazy. But what I do appreciate, what I did appreciate, what I did like about it, um, especially now learning that they were all practical effects, basically, was that every shot, you know, was interesting. There was a lot of artistic elements to this film and it made it visually appealing to watch. Uh, so I thought that was really good, but boring. This film was not. There was there was always so much going on. You had to pay very close attention to everything that was going on. The plot's easy to follow, of course, but you if you if you really were paying close attention, yeah. there was always you know two or three things going on in the background that directly were influencing the film in subtle ways. That was fascinating. Sometimes a little weird. Sometimes a little silly. But nonetheless. I would rather watch a movie like this where it's laughable and kind of bad at certain points, but at least is trying shit. Like I will, I will criticize movies that are boring and aren't doing anything to push the film limits. That might be somewhat good compared to a movie that is kind of bad, but pushes the limits of what filmmaking is. That he's at least showing some artistic license. He's putting his name on the damn fucking thing where he's actually doing something with the frame, even if it isn't good in the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, Like I found, I think, I think some of the things that I found most interesting myself was at the very beginning when Jonathan Harker goes to Dracula's castle and you're first introduced to Dracula, Gary Oldman's Dracula. And if you watch Gary Oldman's performance and watch the shadows behind him, that's interesting. The shadow is a different character. He moves around more sinisterly. So you have Dracula trying to be nice and pleasant and welcoming. And then you have the shadow where there's claws reaching out and, and almost look like he's attacking Jonathan Harker. And, you know, you, the, the shadow is what Dracula is really thinking. It's almost like his conscience. It's his conscience. He wants to be doing. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, he has to put on his impulses. Exactly. He wants, he has to put on this facade though, so that nobody really knows his true feelings. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or, or keep, keep the charade going Mm -hmm. long Mm -hmm. enough. Um, and it, and, and the charade kind of cracks a few times. There's a moment where Harker laughs at, uh, the order of the Dracul. Um, and he sort of snaps and pulls a sword on him, which is a bit of a laughable moment seeing this yeah. old man pull a sword it's out. It's also a massive sword. It's, <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> like, it, it be, I know this is completely sidetracked, but we just watched SNL with, with Gal Gadot and there is a, a digital short where they're kind of mocking Lord of the Rings and Pete Davidson's given a long <laughs> sword. And like, it's just a phallic object to him. And that's just sort of what it seems at this point where he's pulling out this gigantic sword and you just yeah. kind of laugh. You're like, that's a little too big. Did you really need that it's big of a sword? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I think we'll talk about a little bit how bad Keanu Reeves is in this movie. 
so bad. I'm going to put it out there. He was not the worst part of the film. <laughs> what was the worst part then? Uh, there's so many things that were the, the worst <laughs> part of this movie. Um, but I, one thing that I really hated were the three love interests of Lucy and how they were all buddies, but vying for her love. It was very weird. And it was I a little weird. Understand their relationship post her deciding on which man she wanted mm-hmm. and why the other two were still lingering around mm-hmm. and all friends. And then like just the women in this film really bugged me. <laughs> Their characters. Yeah, I I didn't mind them as much. I, I found I did find them a little annoying at times, but I thought the commitment that they were putting into these characters and the sort of transformations that they were making, the arcs that they were doing, I thought was interesting. Um, The the Lucy character, I think, is sort of the the scene stealer, for better or for worse. Uh, You know, she has sex with a wolf, so you can't really get much more scene stealing than that. Yeah, you can't really unsee that either. No, you can't really. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, uh, not really. it is and and so like she kind of really goes for and also really commits to sort of the the sexuality of the character Mm -hmm. but then when she fully becomes a vampire i think there's a really great moments with her where i think the only time where it like truly scared me was after she had died and she's carrying this child down into the crypt and she's wearing has such white makeup and she's wearing a completely white dress so she's just white head to toe looks like a ghost and it just kind of has this really unnerving natural look to her and the way she kind of she looks different mm-hmm. It's not her anymore. There, there's someone else inside of her, and I think that's kind of some really good acting moments where she used the makeup and costume to her advantage yeah. to really enhance her character. And I thought that was done really well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's weird; like she seems like such a prominent part of this movie, but really she dies mm-hmm. like halfway through, and she's gone. It seems so like halfway? it. It like it was pretty early on. I feel like she had more of a presence then Winona then Ryder Mina did. yeah yeah for sure and yeah I, I agree though what what you said though I think her character and the way she portrayed Lucy she did have kind of shining moments mm-hmm. and, and I think Winona Ryder is a bit too timid at certain points definitely where this is the type of movie where as ridiculous as it is where there's a scene there's several scenes of wolf sex there's blood gushing everywhere. You have Gary Oldman licking straight razors and a whole bunch of other, you have a, a weird threesome death orgy going on. Yeah, that was weird. Winona Ryder doesn't seem to fully commit to it. Yeah. She's almost too, I don't know, boring for the rest of the film. Yeah. And obviously she's supposed to kind of be the normalist one in the movie, um, in the least effective. Did I get although not even really because like she has there's like a huge chunk in the middle section where it's just her love story with Dracula. Yeah. Um and at points there it's interesting, but it never really stands out as being more than just mildly interesting. Yeah, I thought the best part um of her character was when Dracula finally comes to her and she decides that she wants to be a vampire too mm-hmm. with him 
And so he bites her and she kind of goes hella crazy. And they have, there's more weirdo sex happening. Well, they have to exchange blood in order for her to actually get the internal mm-hmm. life part. So that I felt like she fully committed to. Yes. That, she, it felt like, you know, an actual character. Whereas before that and even after, I just found it kind of phoned in. A little bit, yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of, I guess, the... we. I, I guess we... we 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 talked a lot about Lugosi and Lee. I guess let's kind of talk about sure. Gary Oldman's performance. Yeah. He sort of takes Dracula to a completely different place than we have seen with these two. He starts out being this very ancient, decrepit old man, which we sort of get a little bit with Lugosi's character, but not really. Not really. Um, he kind of has a bit of weight to his age, but not not like this. Uh, so you get I this. Think- this is where you're pulling more from Nosferatu. You know, he yeah. was he was visibly older. You know, he wasn't attractive. He didn't have any sex appeal to me anyway. Whereas the Christopher Lee's and Lugosi's, you could find something attractive about mm-hmm. them. Gary Oldman's old version of Dracula was just this creepy dude. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you, you kind of have that. And then... He, once he kind of gets some lifeblood in him and he moves to England from Transylvania, he transforms into a uh, young, sexy Gary Oldman. Um, and so that's sort of kind of an interesting take on it because you kind of bring back the sex appeal aspect, but he kind of has this outsider, foreigner, I don't know where I am. Show me the way. A naiveness to him. That's obviously a ploy to get Mina um, to become his lover. But there's... It's it's tough to say. Like, did you think it was a good performance by him? Yeah, I mean, I'd have to say I think he performed... There's a lot of performance, but was a good performance. I think it was a good performance because it fit with the rest of the film. Was it over the top? Was it crazy? Yeah, but I thought it worked with the rest of the movie. He sort of sets the template of by being the craziest person in every yeah. scene makes all the other crazy stuff that happens palatable. Yeah, and definitely. you're used to it and it doesn't seem like it's out of place. Yeah, he's so extreme. Everything else seems more normal. It's tough. Like Gary Oldman's one of those actors who is super underrated, who always commits to his performance he's not so much underrated anymore i think everyone's kind of come around to gary oldman's a fantastic actor but at this time he was definitely underrated you know getting these weird character supporting roles and mostly doing things with either accents or funny costumes and hair pieces and things like that where he never looked the same in two movies uh kind of he kind of sort of set the template of of johnny depp him the two of them were kind of very similar as far as uh, being weird for the sake of being weird. Uh, old men probably just being less popular, but probably maybe overall is a better actor, especially as of late. Gary Oldman's still yeah. a good actor, whereas Johnny Depp's kind of gone off the deep end into just having no sort of creative control over his career anymore. Um, 
it's so tough. Like, I want to say I really liked his performance, but at the same time, I'm not super in love with it. No. no like, I, I don't know where I fall on this. I think... You know, I'll be honest, we only watch this a day before we're recording this. So I think maybe there's some digesting that needs to go on. Uh, I will say that despite it being laugh out loud funny at times and not scary when I'm watching it, this was the only movie that uh, gave me bad dreams, which is weird. (laughs) Uh, I kept thinking there was a wolf in the room uh, because that was a common sort of thing is that you were always being watched. Uh, This... Dracula is always watching you, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's as a bat or as a wolf or as mist. mist. Yeah. yeah, like there's always some something going on. Um, That's something I love too. Is there was there was always seemed to be a pair of eyes on the screen mm-hmm. at some point, whether mm-hmm. you knew it or not, or whether it was the focal point of the shot. There was a set of eyes somewhere. Yeah, there's also lots of like scenes of overlaid frames of Gary Oldman yeah. watching. That was a little silly. It was a little silly. <laughs> so there's, there's like good moments of these like little things that I like, but then there's also the silly over the top. We've gone too far with this. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, all right. I think we're kind of talking lots about the Draculas themselves. We can also kind of maybe talk a little bit about the, the Jonathan Harkers and the Van Helsings. Those are kind of the two other main characters in each of these movies. Um, I don't think we need to go as in depth no. of this, but if you've got something that you really want to point out about either of those characters throughout these three movies. Yeah. I mean, well, like I said, I don't think Keanu Reeves was the worst part of that film for me. Um, also, he just, that character in that film had such a, a smaller part to the story, but um, he had this naive kind of air to him where he was able to be drawn into Dracula's, you know, world, and then he's got stuck there and he finally manages to come back to Mina and you can visibly tell that he's more paranoid about things and he's not as innocent anymore. So I thought, you know, that was good. At least there was a change from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. That one. I thought the, the Harker in the first Dracula was the best of the three mm-hmm. because his transition from being this sort of uptight uh, real estate guy to this crazy unhinged character reminded me a lot of some of the other monster movies of this era, the sort of like Igors. Isn't it Renfeld? Oh, yeah. Was that Renfeld? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's this other character, Renfeld. Yeah. So I guess that's the actor I want to point out where I don't have his name in front of me. But, um, Dwight Fry. Was it? Okay. I thought, I thought he was probably. He was the best part of that movie. Yeah. He was probably the best part of the first movie. The Renfeld character is this. The, usually the first victim or already a victim in the Dracula story who sort of is the servant to Dracula, mm-hmm. uh, sort of unwillingly. Um, but yeah, I thought he was the best performed act performance in the first movie, which was really interesting. Um, you have a couple more famous Van Helsings and Peter Cushing and Anthony Hopkins who both sort of have their own takes on this sort of uh, doctor turned vampire hunter uh, 
was there anything about them that sort of made them good? Because I know Anthony Hopkins, both Anthony Hopkins and Peter Cushing were sort of billed as the reason to watch these movies. Right. Um, I liked Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. Um, he had a connection to Jonathan, who was Dracula's first victim in Horror of Dracula. So you felt kind of more... Uh, a reasoning behind why he was so intent on finding Dracula and kind of avenging his friend's death. Um, I thought Anthony Hopkins was ridiculous. He was a little. Yeah. Uh, I think he was a little too old to be playing this character. I don't know if that was what it was wrong with it for me. It was just, it just felt, <laughs> I keep going back to the word silly because everything just felt so silly mm-hmm. about this movie. But, um, it almost seemed like he was in on a joke the entire time. Hmm. You know, he had this smirk on his face and it was almost like he wasn't telling you everything that you needed to know, but he was billed as this smart, knowledgeable doctor, but it was like a game for him. It wasn't something serious. It was just silly. Yeah. I I know. I don't know if this was his direct follow-up, but this was made just after silence of the lambs. And it was part of the reason why this movie was kind of so successful because it was piggybacked on to his sudden popularity and, and it kind of can't be, you can't get further apart as far as what Hopkins brings to the table. Obviously you can't compare being a hero and a villain, but the, the seriousness that he imbued Silence of the Lambs with and compared to this, it did seem a little ridiculous at times. Um, so yeah, I, he, he just sort of felt out of place as well. Kind of like, like Winona Ryder, but differently. At least Winona Ryder yeah. sort of felt in place where she kind of had that, uh, stiff, sexually repressed character under locks. Under lock, whereas Hopkins sort of just kind of seemed a little thrown in for the sake of having a big name in it. Yeah, potentially. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a, a weird, weird go between. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Do any of the women you want to talk about, whether it's the Minas or anything like that, or you kind of said your piece about them? Mm, I mean, I've kind of said my piece about them i guess okay um one interesting similarity i noticed in all three movies was the dracula stare that they Mm -hmm. all had Mm -hmm. um it was first achieved in the original one where a mirror was held up and around the camera to shine a light directly onto Dracula's eye so it looked like a rectangular bar just above and below his eyesight so it really highlighted Lugosi's stare uh they did that multiple times through that movie and that kind of became his thing where he kind of always had this stare to him mm-hmm. they did it I think once or twice in Horror of Dracula and then they did it once again at the very end of Bram Stoker's Dracula and it was kind of nice that that was clearly a Coppola thing of being like this is a throwback to the original. The hardcore fans that really know their history of the character and the movies are going to recognize what this is. Right. Uh, otherwise, it was kind of not necessarily a throwaway shot, but it wasn't. He could have maybe made it a bit more of an important shot. It was the fact that it came so late and not an early shot where it was establishing Dracula. I think it might have had a bit more impact. Hmm. 
as a viewer, but it was because we're watching all three of these movies so close together, it was instantly recognizable to yeah. me for sure. Yeah. So I really like that he he sort of imbued that. Were there were there any other sort of uh similarities or differences you, you wanted to point out? Between the movies themselves or Yeah, yeah, any of it in general. Um Well, I just I have so much that I love about the first one, about Dracula, that I could probably talk about that. Keep talking about them, yeah. But um, I love the direction of the actors in this one because they're... Which one? Dracula. The original? Okay. Yeah, because every movement, every gesture seemed to have a uniqueness to it and it was kind of eerie or it was very smooth. Like there's this one shot of Dracula's three wives where they're walking mm. towards Renfeld, but they don't seem like they're walking. They're there. floating. They look like they're floating and it's really creepy mm-hmm. and it's just amazing. That's my favorite, probably the, my favorite shot of that entire movie. Yeah. Where you, for, where you first introduced to them and they're just standing in that doorway. It's a brilliant shot. And then, uh, Renfield's character, who I can equate and see parallels with Gollum, where he kind of has this internal uh, battle going on between mm-hmm. good and evil. And when he's being, when he has the evil taking over him, he's all hunched over and he's he's like kind of crawling around and feels all within this like box. But then when he's trying to be good, he's he's standing up a little bit more straight and he's looking into your eyes when he's talking to you and he seems like he's really pleading, not just with you, but with himself to push past Dracula's hold on him. So I thought that was great. And just Dracula's movements too, he seemed to almost creep with every step and every movement that he made, whether it was bringing his cloak around his victim. It had a purpose. It had weight to it. And that's something that I really appreciated about this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree. It was for a sh- the shortest running time of the three. It kind of made the most of all of its moments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an atmospheric movie. That's that's the whole point of it. It kind of has because of when it was made. It definitely has this kind of old school feel to it that was very quickly degraded with like the fact that they would make 10 Dracula sequels in the next few years, <laughs> kind of completely ruining the characters. The same thing with all these monster movies. The originals, you know, watch the original and then stop. Don't watch the sequels to yeah, them yeah, because yeah. whether it's Frankenstein or The Mummy or Phantom of the Opera or The Wolfman or whatever it is, these original monster movies, that's the only time where they kind of give this main character a sympathetic view they're not just some monster yeah. there's some sort of good and evil raging on behind the scenes and much more of a even though some of it might come later but there's a a, a bit of a, a gothic romance to all of it that you really feel and obviously frankenstein sort of held up as the ideal gothic romance right. story but this Dracula, the original one, definitely kind of has a bit of that gothic feel to it yeah. as well, which is really nice. There's actually this one quote that stuck out to me near the beginning of the film where Renfeld first is introduced to the castle and he has to walk through these cobwebs and he's looking around like he's scared of spiders. And Dracula says to him, they're just spiders. Blood is their life. He's giving it this reason that you don't have to be scared of this blood-sucking creature that's just how they live, which I think is brilliant coming from Dracula because that's 
how he lives. And I just loved that so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, we, we mentioned briefly the, the story of Nosferatu. We, while we didn't have a chance to catch up with it again while watching these movies, uh, the story is, is still the exact same as far as this idea of someone going to the castle in Transylvania, meeting this vampire, the vampire moving over to England, uh, with this story of it being the a ship being a rocky trip over and then kind of wrecking hell over there and then someone saving the day. Nosferatu being a silent film, the characters are a lot more one-dimensional, as as flat as you can sort of get, because that's sort of the way silent cinema works, that you can only go across of what they look like, not really with what they're saying. Um, absolutely stunning film to watch, you know, if you're, if you're not used to, like, this is, this is a very early silent film. This is German expressionist directed by F.W. Murnau, who is, who's a legend, uh, from that time period, who's directed tons of other classics. Uh, if you're not used to silent films, it's not good to watch because it's a bit harder to watch than even other silent films. You can see where they've had to change reels in the middle of scenes where you see an, uh, the character walk across the stream screen and then there's an obvious cut and then continuation of the character keeps walking. Um, so it's, it's kind of tough to watch if you're not used to that feeling, but if you're kind of okay with that and, and understanding of watching it from a, from a very, I want to say basically from a student's perspective where you're learning about sort of the history of film and what this film kind of brought to the table and, and sort of set the template. It's really a great one. And it also really sort of sets the template of what sort of a monster uh, Dracula can really be because he's sort of the, the epitome of looking scary and disgusting. He's got long pointed ears and all of his teeth are sharp and jagged unlike just having two fangs and at a time it's hilarious there's because this movie came out in germany in the early in the 1920s there was actually rumors that the actor who played nosferatu max shrek was some sort of beast <laughs> some sort of creature because they didn't know what was going on. Obviously we know that cannot be true. Um, or that he was some sort of hideous deformed man. No, it really was makeup. Uh, Max Schreck was a very famous German theatrical actor because this movie was 1922. I think, um, was so new to cinema and, and a lot of German cinema didn't really survive you only have a handful from that time period you don't really get to see what who this max shrek is so really for most people today the only way you'll ever see who max shrek is is as an osferatu so you sort of get this idea of that's who he really is mm -hmm. because you don't know what else he looks like mm -hmm. and so that's kind of interesting to really think about and kind of goes with the idea of how audiences back then were so sort of gullible <laughs> and do if it's on screen it had to be real right. which i guess is supposed to be the the magic and charm of movies yeah, if it's on true. screen we're supposed to believe it yep. yeah. and if you don't believe it it's it can, it's not a good movie it's exactly. the director and everyone else didn't do their jobs <laughs> so i don't know um and i guess the last thing is i kind of want to wrap it up 
talking about one of my favorite movies of the last few years, a movie called What We Do in the Shadows, which is a mockumentary about a bunch of vampires living together in a house in modern day New Zealand. Um, and you have all these different versions of Dracula. So yeah. you, there is a Nosferatu character who lives in the basement yep. who only like, that's all he does. Um, and then you've got like the sexy Lothario, young Gary Oldman Dracula. And then you've got the like Bela Lugosi style, uh, where he's so prim and proper and everything like that. And, and so it's kind of hilarious seeing all these different Draculas put together where they clearly very lovingly enjoy all of yeah. these different versions. Um, you can tell their love for, for the genre and for the character themselves. And so like if you've seen some of these, you definitely need to check out what we do in the shadows. Uh, one, because it's just absolutely hilarious. If you're a fan of Flight of the Concords, uh, it stars Jermaine Clement and Reese Darby, who are both uh, leads in that show. And it's directed by Taika Waititi, who directed a few episodes, I believe, of Flight of the Concords. So it's, and it also has sort of a bit of a similar sense of humor where it mm-hmm. combines visual gags with witty lines of dialogue. Um, and it kind of all sort of wraps up together as being a nice, nice way to, to look at Dracula. Yeah. So, uh, definitely recommend these movies. Um, all of them are, are pretty interesting in their own, in their own right. Uh, I really enjoyed doing this sort of project. Uh, any final thoughts on watching these sort of Dracula movies? Do you have a better understanding of who Dracula is or anything? Yeah, I think Dracula needs to take a break. <laughs> We've been very serious. Our relationship went from zero to 60 very fast. Um, but, no, I really enjoyed watching each portrayal of Dracula and what each actor brought to the character. And um, I said it before and I'll say it again. Bela Lugosi's Dracula is the best. <laughs> <laughs> He's pretty fantastic. Uh, all that said, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is episode number 50. This is huge. Uh, I love doing this. I hope you keep listening. Um, do you have a, a favorite performance of Dracula? Send me an email, Dakota at liveandlimbo.com. Hit me up on Twitter at DGAPA or as I mentioned last episode, I finally restarted the Twitter account for this uh, podcast at ContraZoom Pod, uh, where now anytime I try to I watch a movie, I'll usually tweet something out um, or I'll talk about how this recording is going and when these episodes are coming out. So, you know, it's I want to engage with people. So please reach out to me. Check out liveandlimbo.com where the show notes are going to be. Um, send me your feedback. Where are your Halloween recommendations? Where are you watching? I want to know what scares you. Uh, thank you so much for listening uh, and have a great day. I put a spell on you. Because of mine. Stop the things you do.
on you. 